You're listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Becca. And I'm Marina. And today we're speaking with Dr. Aaron Lee Mock. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Aaron is the Associate Professor of English and Director of the Program in Film Studies at the University of West Georgia. Her research focuses on popular culture in the second half of the 20th century, and she has published on topics ranging from Playboy to Alfred Hitchcock, Spaghetti Westerns to Linda Lovelace, Norman Lear to Leave It to Beaver, and her current manuscript is entitled It Was Easy, American Popular Culture and Veteran Reintegration After World War II. How did you get interested in film studies? Was it an interest that started in your time as an undergrad, or did you find your passion later? It was actually much earlier than that. Um, as a kid, I was a film junkie. At one point, I decided that I needed to go through the entire American Film Institute 100 list. I think I was about 12 at the time. Um, and uh, that really kindled my interest in classic cinema. And That's impressive. <laughs> I don't know how impressive it is so much as I always needed an undertaking. I always needed a project, which is very good for an academic one day. Mm-hmm. I thought that I wanted to be a director, and I went to one of those great camps that they had in the 1990s where you used a gigantic camcorder, and you worked in a group, and you had no boom mic, and you couldn't hear anything. And I realized that there were technical aspects of that and collaborative aspects of that that I wasn't that excited about. So I thought I might be a screenwriter, I might be an actor. And ultimately, when I went to college, I realized I never wanted to leave. It was so awesome. And from there, uh, you know, it, it took a little while, but I ended up in graduate school. And reading and watching films was something that made me feel high. It made me feel more excited than anything on the face of the earth. And the fact that I could be creative and driven through scholarship as opposed to making films themselves was a revelation. Where did you go to undergrad in grad school? I went to the New School University um, in New York City and the City University of New York also in New York City. Sounds like you had the real beginnings of a true (laughs) academic even as a child. Um, We hear you have a forthcoming book on gender trauma and post-World War II U.S. culture. Um, Without giving too much away, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, It's called, as you mentioned, It Was Easy. And what I discussed there is the ways in which popular culture specifically facilitated the integration of veterans after World War II. And what's important about understanding that is that it's not just about the traumatized or shell-shocked veteran, but about what some of the expectations were for these men returning. They were trained to fight and kill, right? That, that was one of the things that they were prepared to do, that they spent years learning about whether they did it or not. And there was some public concern about what was going to happen when these men landed back in the U.S., And the movement was radically diasporic. You know, what you're seeing is one of the biggest culture clashes in American history to have all of these men return. So the way that I feel about popular culture is that um, it gives us what we need or it gives us what we want. And that can be a problem. That can be a bomb. It can go either way. So in this era, I suggest that popular culture facilitated this mixture of repression 
and expression. So giving some bits of opportunities to get out all of these feelings, all of this violence, all of this hypersexuality that people were afraid of, that being the expression, but also repressing the ways in which that might create conflict or do harm to the people on the home front and to the veterans themselves. And over time, this became so cloaked in fiction and film and magazine culture and television, it became so cloaked that it was about veterans that it started to just seem like it was about men. Mm. Interesting. Yes. And so a lot of our uh, assumptions and expectations in the second half of the 20th century about what men do, what men naturally do, what we can expect from men, I argue, have roots in this idea of the veteran being dangerous and sexualized. You briefly touched on what you think popular culture does. Could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I think we have a notion of popular culture as being something that is decided in boardrooms in Hollywood by executives, right? Or um, something that a writer sits down to create. And I think that that is obviously very much a part of how popular art is created. But I think uh, I'm not alone in seeing that popular culture is responding to broader cultural norms and that on many occasions... That's been a way through which cultural concerns can be modulated, can be quieted down in a way by expressing them that way. And I think we're at our best when our popular culture is doing that, as opposed to exploring its very id, uh, parentheses, 2016 to present. So you talk a little bit about intersections of gender into this work as well. Um, We're wondering if you have other research interests so within film, but as post-World War II research your main sort of era of interest, or does your work kind of intersect into different periods of time in the U.S.? Um, And I guess, how does gender play into that as well? Because I think that's really fascinating. Sure. Recently, I published a piece on the porn star Linda Lovelace, who famously performed in the film Deep Throat. She is a really interesting character because she was very very out there with how excited she was to be a pornographic star. And then later, she reneged on that and said, in fact, that it had been an abusive experience for her and she had tremendous regrets. So she chose to write a memoir on the experience. And an amazing thing happened, which is that the publisher of the memoir required her to take a polygraph test in order to prove that she had been lying when she said she loved pornography. So she proved both that she was lying in the past and that in the current moment she was telling the truth. And that, I think, is a really interesting way to think about women and consent in the early 70s and the ways that we might um, understand some of the recent transitions, understand even the Me Too movement um, and the reasons why it took as long as it did to get to some of these conversations through mm-hmm. this hyper-sexualized, uh, you know, sexual icon and the ways that she changed her mind about her experience and how much we trusted her or didn't trust her culturally. That really speaks to some stuff today. So, yeah. Yeah, I hope it does. So that that was a recent piece of mine. Right now, I am continuing to be really interested in the post-World War II period. I have a couple of projects in the works. I was really lucky. I got to go to the New York Public Library and look at the materials from an organization called the Stage Door Canteen. 
and the Stage Door Canteen was uh, put together by the American Theater Wing during World War II. And it was meant to be a space for service members, well, servicemen, specifically servicemen, to uh, have some recreation when they were stateside. And there, it, this is a really interesting moment because this was a group of people that were uh, self-styled leftist. And they had to grapple with the fact that at that moment there was segregation. And they had to grapple with the fact that Italians, who had once been on one side, were now being integrated into the Allied side. They had to grapple with the fact that Jewish service members were still experiencing quite a bit of prejudice, despite the fact that that was changing at the moment of uh, Nazi power. And so I'm really interested in the way that they used both popular and high art to try to mitigate um, and understand some of those ethnic and racial conflicts. And then the bigger project that I'm working on is about labor in the Hollywood system, specifically after World War II. And I'll just tell you about one little piece of this. There was a... Have you guys seen Gone with the Wind? Yes. Yes. You don't see clips. Sure. Sure. So um, one of the women in that film, not the big star, not Scarlett O'Hara, played by Vivian Lee, mm-hmm. uh, but Olivia de Havilland was in that film. And she did something very radical that we don't hear much about, which is that she brought a case against her studio, which ended up going to court. And it led to the de Havilland Law. And what she argued was that there was a fundamental unfairness to a system in which one as an actor is typecast. That was not the case before. In the studio system, it was automatic to typecast. That was that it, it wasn't just an accident. That was overtly the plan. That was how pictures were made. It was easier that way, right? You knew exactly how many actors you needed because you needed the ingenue and you needed the heavy, etc. She felt that that was limiting, and she won the case. It led to the De Havilland Law. That kind of activism amongst actors is something that's really undertreated. We're very aware, and rightly so, of the kind of activism that uh, screenwriters especially were involved in this period. But I think actors are understudied in this respect, and I think looking at labor in that era also gives us some insight into race and gender because ultimately it was women and people of color who had to work hardest to fight past these stereotypes at the time. And it leads to a system of Hollywood agenting, which is now just what we expect, right? Mm -hmm. Your agent gets you these parts, you work with your agent, this happens. And that was just not necessary when you worked in a studio system. So that's my obsession of the moment. I've read that the character who played Mammy had to fight to be allowed at the film premiere because of the segregation laws at the time. So that's really interesting to think about how race and gender plays into that and how it determines entertainment, but not necessarily equal human rights. Um, That sounds fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we're recording this on November 12th, and you're giving a talk on campus later today titled His Blood is Up, Veteran Reintegration and Post-War Hollywood. Will that be its own chapter in the book that you're currently writing? And could you give us a sneak peek at what you're going to say during your lecture? Sure. It's not precisely a chapter in the book. What I try to do is bring together uh, some of the broader ideas, some of what I discussed with you guys, um, the fact that it is about veteran reintegration. But I'm specifically looking at Hollywood here. And the way that genre and style functioned as ways 
to create this space for reintegration. So I'm looking specifically at film noir and westerns. What I argue is that in this moment where one would expect there to be all these combat films, right? Everybody's just come back. You would think that would be the time. And it actually is the slump in American film history. 1946, the high watermark of cinema going, and yet fewer and fewer combat films are made for the next 10 years, right after the conflict and during the, the Korean War. So how could that possibly happen? Wouldn't that be on people's minds? So what I argue is that through Westerns and film noir, filmmakers, actors, and therefore audiences were able to process war trauma in a way that displaced the guilt. So soldiers were not bad, right? Service members were not bad. But in film, some characters could be and stay bad. So what I read then it, um, are two types of characters, which came again and again and again, and there were certain actors that were associated with one, associated with the other, going back to the typecasting mm -hmm. conversation. And I call them the man who does, who is the expressive man, and the man who doesn't who is the repressive man. And so these are not good men and bad men. These are men who have the exact same urges to commit violence, to have extramarital or otherwise sexual uh, conduct. They want to do all of this, but one does and one doesn't. And that's, I think, a, a pretty particular way of thinking about um, what the post-war era allows, that some men we fear will act on this, but there's an element of free will that by the 1950s, people are really insisting upon, like, hey, Maybe this is working a little bit. There have, haven't been too many riots. Society is not totally falling apart. So some men are not acting on these urges as much as we assume that they exist. And so I'm looking at two films in particular in A Lonely Place. This tremendous film noir directed by Nicholas Ray based on a really brilliant novel by Dorothy Hughes and starring Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. And uh, a, a Western called Shane, which is one of my favorite all-time films, uh, starring Alan Ladd and Van Heflin, and uh, directed by George Stevens in 53. So I'm looking at those two films with that in mind. Just They're, they're sort of represented, representative pieces rather than offering some kind of whole picture of Hollywood. Do you have like a favorite trope of character or like a favorite <laughs> typecast of character? Wow. Don't know the language for this, but what I like are femme fatales that aren't femme fatales. And they exist en masse in film noir, but people just call them femme fatales. But often these are women who by accident or unwillingly get men involved in situations that um, are compromising. So we think of the femme fatale as the woman who says, come on in, let's make a plan, let's get the insurance policy, you know. <laughs> um, but, but in fact, for example, in The Big Heat, Gloria Graham's character there um, is just really in many ways a victim, but she's trying to find ways to protect herself. And in that way, Glenn Ford's character becomes wrapped up in this criminal underworld for other reasons as well. And she's often just called a femme fatale. And she's clearly a much more complex character than that. So I get really excited when I see those warped femme fatales, if you will. Um, I feel like you've already given us a lot of fun facts about film, so this question is tough. But what's an interesting sort of piece of film history that a lot of people don't know that you know. Sure. One that I think is really interesting, and, and, and again, it, it meets my research interests, 
is the ways in which activism can happen on film sets. So a great little tidbit is about The Wizard of Oz, a film we've all seen. We know that there were some really abusive conditions on that set. We hear frequently about what Judy Garland went through, right? And, and I'm glad we do. I think it's really important to expose that side of Hollywood in that era and today. We don't hear as much about the munchkins and what the munchkins were able to do in a moment where they were being paid less than Toto. They formed a union. Mm. They called themselves the Midgets of America. And it has since become the Little People of America. And it's among the first unions for performers with particular abilities. Wow. Yeah. Wow. They're being paid less than Toto? Less than the dog. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. But they knew their worth. And that's one of the exciting things, I think, about uh classical or like the golden age of cinema and post-war cinema as well is that people were really you know awakening to the ways that they were critical to hollywood film what is the wizard of oz without the munchkin the moment when she steps out and you know into full color and they welcome her to munchkin land that's one of the greatest scenes that we all remember and they gave that to us so they, they recognized how critical it was for them to be part of that. Now they might CGI it. Then that was not the option, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, I think we've lost a lot in the way of practical effects with how much we rely on CGI. Because mm -hmm. they did amazing things in older movies that you... It just, it's not the same now. Do you have favorite practical effects moments in film history? I mean, I've always loved Jim Henson's puppets, no mm -hmm. matter what. They've, they've always been terrifying and creepy and amazing. But I also just really admire, like, stuntmen and stuntwomen who are doing those incredibly difficult and often harmful stunts. <laughs> um, like, you always see, like, the one gif of the house, like, fall falling on top of him. And, like, it brushes his arm. And he just stands there and takes it. Yeah, I agree. I think... Stunt performers are some of the most underappreciated figures on any film set. And we also don't recognize how frequently stunt performers are in the work that we watch because it's certainly not at all action movies that these that these men and women are asked to participate in. Yeah. I did see one recently of it's from like the third John Wick movie that came out pretty recently. Mm -hmm. I saw the video of the stuntman like actually doing a fall off the roof and it looked brutal. And I just cannot imagine doing that yeah <laughs> it's yeah. incredible mm -hmm. i'm thinking of jurassic park yes and the special yes. the effects in that and it isn't cgi really in the same way that we think of cgi it's i mean these beautifully detailed huge like pieces of art people make these things and it still looks scary and realistic mm -hmm. and that's rare i think for older movies to still have that effect today um it says a lot about art in the industry there's actually, like, less than 15 minutes of dinosaurs on screen in those movies. Oh, really? Yeah. It's so weird. Mm -hmm. And then I actually heard recently that some of the, like, dinosaurs that they made are, like, decomposing because of the materials that they made them out of. So oh, we're, like, goodness. losing all of that. It's super depressing no. to lose that piece of history. I feel relatively certain that there will be restoration work on that. Oh, if, yeah. If definitely. It, <laughs> if it's breaking your heart. <laughs> I, I, I dinosaurs. Think, <laughs> I think you can breathe easier. Yeah. 
So we have one final question on here, um, and we don't want to torture you by asking for your favorite film because that's a horrible question. Um, but what is something you've seen recently that you might recommend? I recently saw Parasite. Um, it won the Palm d'Or by Bong Joon-ho. It knocked me out. I could not recommend this highly enough. It was everything that cinema can be. It was funny. It was wrenching. It was scary. It was tense. It was beautiful. The performances were tremendous. There was not one thing about it that did not electrify me. And my partner also works in film. And we sat down in the car as we were about to drive away. And we were both sort of sitting there stunned at what we had experienced. And so if you are listening and you two here in this room, get to see Parasite. It will blow your mind. I highly recommend mm -hmm. it. Highly. Thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. Thank you. Thank you. You guys were great. It was such a pleasure to sit here and chat with you. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Our intro and outro music come from Phase 3 by Zylo Zico. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.